Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day ladies and gents and welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. I cannot tell you how excited I am. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Um, To those of you with children, Maggie Dent will probably be a household name or a bit of an icon to you. I know she is coined the queen of common sense um, and the queen of resilient parenting. I've come to know Maggie, perhaps I'm a face in the crowd to her, but two or three or four times Maggie has been to Wagga and I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed being part of her presentations and part of her workshops, both on raising resilient children um, and also on turning up and being better as husband and wives to each other. Um, Maggie's an author. Um, she's a presenter. She's a podcast um, champion. And I'm just so delighted, Maggie, to have you join us on Profitable Farmer. Welcome. Oh, look, Jeremy, when this uh, offer came through, you know, every sort of like one of my genes in my <laughs> DNA leapt because I'm born and bred on a farm uh, and farming communities have been where I've spent a lot of my formative years when I stepped out as a parenting educator. I'm not an expert because I bugger up a lot. Um, And I think that was exactly what it was. I do know that landscape and it's still very dear to me. Um, and so thank you for asking me. And let's, I think we're going to have some fun. I can I share that story with you? I just did about um my love of kind of the research and looking at what I can pull out of that sometimes to back up what looks like common sense because common sense isn't that common anymore is it um and that was that my dad was an ag scientist um he you know was an agronomist but he also did genetics and I used to be his right hand girl when I was you know little which is why I'm part bloke and I can still vividly remember helping him hold calipers to measure ram scrotums and also with a spotlight at night to see if the boys were performing. Now, not many eight-year-old girls have that experience in the back of their little kickback for life. <laughs> I reckon that's one of the advantages of being a parent on farm, Maggie, is that the sex talk can happen pretty quickly oh. and pretty early in life, can't it? And the death one, you know, like no yeah. joke, you know, whether you have to go out and shoot rabbits or foxes or whatever or you know, someone accidentally runs over your farm dog. That happens really early that, you know, we we are exposed to really big stuff and we all work out ways of getting through it. Nothing sugar-coated or bubble-wrapped on a farm. And the other one I think has probably given me too much of a work ethic is the fact that, you know, we're expected to be part of that workforce. And there were times whether we're picking up rocks or we were tidying paddocks or doing burn-offs in autumn or... I am so old that we used to have to wash the super bags, hang them on fences for the grain. Can you believe I'm that old? Well, you just couldn't go, oh, I'm a bit tired. I'll just go and play on my iPad. No, you actually had to help out because you were really a health, you know, a helpful part of that. So I think, like I said, the advantages sometimes that growing up in, in rural areas, particularly close to farms, is not just that we raise them to be more resilient. But I also feel there's a deeper connection to nature. We're really aware of the shifting of seasons um, and 
the importance of bugs, um, predators, um, joyful moments of watching a you know an eagle take off right near you, or you know having a baby joey kangaroo for a time. So all of those things, I believe, deepen the depth of raising whole children instead of this kind of brain on a seat source of data pressure that we've got now across um, our education systems. Maggie, I was. Um... Driving my son yesterday to the emergency ward, he cut his finger on a blender and broke a bone and torn a tendon. And um, I was proud of how brave he was, but I love the fact that on the on the way to the emergency ward, he looked out the window and said, Dad, can you slow down? There's an eagle being attacked by a couple of magpies. And so we had to slow down and watch the eagle. And I just thought, beauty. I think that's um, that's good news for me. And that's a classic example of boy-male single focus, right? That just suddenly took his whole focus and fortunately it was a nature focus. And um, so it just, you know, let it go, the fact he made a pretty lousy choice and it's actually got a natural consequence. Oh, those trips to ED. (laughs) My boys used to call them ditches because they couldn't say stitches. (laughs) So would you mind telling us a little bit more about your connection to agriculture and I think, you know, raising four young boys in WA? Yeah. Um, So my dad um, um, was on the same farm as my grandfather. My grandfather got a farm plot after his efforts in the First World War. Um, He was a fireman in Kalgoorlie before then. And um, my dad was obviously born on the farm and raised on the farm and he went away um, to university, which was pretty big because he was in a one-teacher school uh, that he used to ride a horse to. I know, it's unbelievable. Um, and then in just before his final year at university, the Second World War broke out, became a sailor and ended up um, sailing around the Pacific and things. When he came back, um, he went back to, he ended up working for CSIRO. <laughs> um, and it, over those coming years, it was about kind of five years after that, that my grandfather really needed some help on the farm and dad basically came back. And so there's six of us in our family, crazy family. Uh, I'm the fifth of six. Um, wheat sheep, um, like I said, very, very good crops. They had to give up having crop competitions because my dad always won them. Um, and then I went off to university at one point uh, after boarding school and became a teacher. The teacher ended up in Albany at the bottom of WA, which is a beautiful place to grow up. Had these four boys, and in my years through teaching, um, which I absolutely loved, I still couldn't believe you could get paid to have so much fun, um, and raising the boys, we actually were home every opportunity on the farm with our cousins, being as feral and filthy as we could possibly be. And that's kind of why when I started my work, it was in rural communities of Western Australia, and then I kind of stepped into suicide prevention work in the wheat belt because there was a really big drought at the time. So that's when um, I started running community kind of seminars about resilience. And it was so funny because one of them and a, a very small place called Muckambudin, which is really whoop whoop land. Um, I went and ran the community seminar for, you know, everyone there. And, was, you know, the food was so good. There's nothing like curried egg sandwiches from farm eggs. I'm sorry. That's just right up there. Um, And what was interesting was about two weeks later, I got an email from the organiser and she said, "Um, I'm not sure how you're going to take this, but the men in the community would like you to come back and have them in the shed without any women. And I went, woo! (laughs) And it was the first time I had been invited to talk to men 
And we ended up with 180 men aged uh, 15 to 85 in a shearing shed. So that kind of began my journey of helping them to understand not just mental health, but relationships, because as farmers, you know, I had a pretty traditional dad and I was surrounded by very conservative farming men. Um, Sometimes they can stay stuck a little um, in a place that confuses them. And yeah, and and kind of it took off from there. And then I ended up at places like Wagga Wagga. What is it to be resilient? We're going to talk a bit about resilience as farmers and, and raising resilient kids. What is it to be resilient? And and what are some of those tips around that that you shared with those 180 men and the thousands of men that you've touched since? Yeah. Um, I think the thing we have to know is that if you are really living in a farming community, you know that just, sorry, but shit happens, Right lousy seasons on oh, my dad's brilliant prize crop burnt down with lightning um we have deaths that we all of a farmer that we all step up to support so when you're immersed with the unpredictable nature of life in the in the rural communities you don't stay around blaming you just get up and get on with fixing it um, and making it okay in other words it's adapting to adversity which is technically what it is and i remember still um even with you know, when there were bushfires in in our area, um, you know, making sandwiches for who was out fighting the fires. We again, um, it, it was a we it was this collective nature of us coming together. And the latest research, um, I was at a, a conference, international conference in Halifax in Canada in 2015. You know, there's sometimes I scratch my head and say, how the little girl from wandering get the heck over here presenting? And I don't know how that kind of happened. And what they've worked out is Nobody is completely resilient all the time. We're much more resilient after eight hours sleep than we are after two. So anyone with little kids, <laughs> no wonder you flip your lid a bit more. Um, but also our capacity can grow over time. If we, The more we deal with adverse things, the kind of more adaptable and that we trust the fact that as humans we're biologically wired to survive. The second thing is um, the research shows now that it's it's the systems you live within. So it's our families, school communities, um, our rural communities, our, maybe our faith community or a sporting community. They're all systems. And when we belong in systems, because we are social beings, um, that it's, an, it's a form of protection. And then within those systems are resources that we can use or call on when we need some help to overcome something if we can't do it on our own. So in actual fact, it's a collective thing. It's not just a solo thing. And I think I once was in uh, living in the city teaching for one year and then Posty said to me, the lady next door to me who was in her 70s was quite unwell with the flu. So I baked up this great big pot of chicken soup and took it over and, and I, I handed it to her and she looked at me and she said, well, how much do you want? And I said, what do you mean? Well, how much do you, nobody had ever turned up with a pot of soup when she had been unwell in her entire life. I said, all you owe me is my pot back. Um, And so can you see collectively, it's something um, that rural communities absolutely, it doesn't mean to say they don't get on their knees. And I've worked with communities uh, after floods and fires and in the middle of drought um, in terms of suicide prevention. And what we do know too, and I've noticed it, that it's the communities that are closer together with their systems recover faster and more effectively with less people 
becoming permanently, um, you know, in, you know, impaired mentally, physically, or emotionally. So either way, um, and what I needed to do for the men, and this was a big lesson, Jeremy. Um, it was the fires down in Esperance, um, the rural group down there got me to come down. And by then, you know, they already knew that <laughs> we'd have to run the session which had the women in and the session <laughs> which had the men. Um, and these men in this particular area had fought for sort of five days and nights nonstop without any external support because it, there was all sorts of mixes up with communication. And in amongst it, one of their most beloved farmers had um, died and when, a, you know, the wind went the other way and three of his workmen, um, a couple of backpackers and things. And so in the months that happened afterwards, it was about three months down and um, I got the call from, first it was Red Cross called me and then um, the community and I went down and what was happening was all of those firemen, obviously they'd been through fires before, but and as warriors, so there is a biological wiring in men to defend and protect, you know, that thank goodness that's why you got more muscles than us girls. You know, it's a really fundamental thing. So they stepped up, put their lives at, you know, which is what they do. And, yes, we do know there are some women who can do that as well, not as many as our men. But what had happened because they had lost one of their own, they didn't come home feeling like a hero or a that they had vanquished. They came home feeling like it hadn't been good enough. And many of them were doing the stoic bit, you know, I'll deal with this, you know. And then there were people turning up saying, you just need to see a counsellor and talk about it. And so I needed to go down and say, what's happening here is um, something really crappy happened and a part of you feels like it wasn't enough. You didn't do enough. And that is absolute rubbish. There is physically nothing else you could have done. And the second thing is what you're experiencing is not depression. It's a combination of the grief with the devastation in your community, including one of the local schools, the loss of somebody significant, the loss of, um, you know, you name it, stock, livestock, property, everything. So all that grief, because you're in a community, it's a collective grief and it's big. And on top of that is what we call situational distress, which is what everyone's experiencing right now, is that you just get exhausted with how long things take to recover. So it's not a form of depression. And when I gave them permission to feel that, there was this palpable sigh of relief. And I did have to say to them that it is absolutely okay to own that to someone. And if it's not your partner that you live with and your wife or whoever you live with then sometimes it's easier to someone who doesn't know you in the community and what was brilliant was the blaze aid people were there and over the following weeks every now and then they'd drop in for a you know a cup of coffee or something at 10 o'clock at night and you know these farmers were sometimes having a really big sob and let down to a complete stranger in the dark who didn't judge them, who've done this, you know, they are just angels without wings, I reckon. They're amazing. And also they're quite mature. Um, and then we found men were able to turn to their partners and say, look, I'm, I'm not travelling well, and found that instead of feeling that women won't be able to love you if you're not our warrior, it's an absolute pile of rubbish that, is when men own to the woman they love that they're not doing so well or that they're, you know, they're not feeling good or that they've, you know, they're feeling like a failure. 
us women kind of grab our masculine inside us and we step up and we will protect them and absolutely hold them up. And when you've had that experience just once in your life, you're transformed. So can you see at different times that language around it's men, they have to be stoic, they're supposed to deal with it themselves, they've got a problem solved. Well, they often have to process it, Jeremy, which is why they're not as good at necessarily talking about it. And one of the neuroscience things, I'm just this is incredibly important for every relationship, but particularly farming ones, because you know, there are times you get pretty shitty when you're out there cropping in all hours of the night where you've come home, you know, and harvest and it's stinking hot and the kids are making too much noise and yeah. <laughs> so what happens for women, girls and women, when the limbic brain, which is the emotional brain, fires up and they get upset, the next centre that fires up is the word centre. <laughs> so that's often when we do this vent that isn't very nice and very irrational sometimes. And we can sometimes attack the one we love the most, right? But in, instead of seeing that as a bad thing, you need to see that as a sign that yeah, you are the one she loves the most. Whereas what's happening in the male brain is the limbic brain fires up and then the body. So now you can see why so often boys and, and adolescent men shove and push and you'll see, I mean, so often in the movies, it's a classic, Rah! because they can't. Bring it to word center. Mm -hmm. And the word center can take anything from six to eight to 24 hours or even a few more days, which is why sometimes when we understand that with our male, female, um, we can kind of come around and have a conversation about it a day or two later. And you will be able to hear that man own all the things that are under that. Does that, does that, is that helpful? That's wonderful. What I love about what I see you do, Maggie, is that you explain how men tick to women and you explain incredibly how women tick to men. Um, Let me that, do the bin one. Come on, I've got to do the bin one. You know how good that one is. You go ahead. <laughs> I had a question, but I'll come back to it. Go ahead. Please come back to your question, but you know yeah, how much sure. I love this one. There's two things that if when we understand it with our, if we're in a heterosexual relationship is that, um, you know, women do love to, to chat, you know, the whole talk to most of them. I'm part bloke, so I'm not so good. It's actually my man who's my chatter, and we all take the mickey out of him. Um, so they come home from a day and they've been out, and, and when you catch up at night, sometimes um, she'll give what's called the berry report. So she's been out, you know, checking her out what's happening. I come in and she'll go, okay, so, um, oh, so I was in town today, and uh, you know that culvert, the one that's down near the deli? Like, the, it's really dangerous, you know. There's some loose rocks on it and loose bricks on it, and someone could fall over into there. And I, I went into the butcher. Do you know how much lamb chops are? Thank God we kill our own sheep because it's just so damn expensive. And I ran into Bob, and he said, you're hitting off at 9.30 on. And so what's happening is she's what we call dribbling almost, but what she's doing is she's giving you a rundown on her whole day. Yep. And a man obviously is still wired to think, how can I defend and protect her? What, what, what is it I'm supposed to fix here? And, and, and is there a point to this conversation? And there's no point. This is a woman wanting to give herself to you in the whole day because she loves you. Yep. So I keep reminding men, you just nod a bit. Yep. Keep focusing and nodding. And when she's finally finished, you go, do you want a, do you want a cup of tea or a glass of wine, love? And you've nailed it. The problem is if she stops wanting to give you her berry report, your relationship's a bit wobbly. So that's the first one that's important. And the second one is that one of single focus. You know, guys are really single focused. And they get really frustrated. Um, that is one of the things I will do as a woman 
Um, I often loop around, have lots of unfinished jobs, and it drives my poor man berserk. Why can't you just finish one thing? <laughs> and what we know is that's the pragmatism of men. They're very pragmatic, right? And they like to get that sorted before I do that, right? And so there are times that they might be on their phone um, checking out the football tipping, yeah, or what the weather's going to be like when you're planning to, you know, do some spraying in two weeks and you're, you're here on the phone, right, and you have forgotten that today is Tuesday bin night. And because you really like to do the bins because it's one of the jobs she doesn't have to have on her to-do list, it just slips your mind a little bit. But what she sees is how can you be, how can you forget? It's every Tuesday, every Tuesday, same day. So what we find is this kind of despairing voice coming at men going, it's Tuesday. Which can you remember it's Tuesday, bin day. And I just wanted to say that, you know, all you have to do is, you know, go to the man you love who's got distracted by his single focus and either rub his back or pat his shoulder or, you know, go, hey, babe, bin night. Yep. And he'll be up like a flash because he clean forgotten, but he hasn't de- deliberately forgotten to annoy you, which is the story that we sometimes tell ourselves. I yeah. love that, Maggie. I um, <laughs> I love James made a massive change there. Instead of a hundred words about something other than the Berry Report, and we yeah. do do the Berry Report, um, she does. She comes and taps me on the shoulder and just gives. Me and my three boys, yeah. just three-word instructions. And I can remember yeah. growing up in a family where mum was incredibly verbose and we switched off and disengaged yeah. to her frustration. Um, so I love that Jane does that. But the other thing that I remember distinctly um, that I might ask you to speak to is that when I leave the kitchen, the instruction that Jane gave me in the kitchen stays in the kitchen. So when I go into the paddock, I don't remember to pick the kids up because that instruction stayed in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, so what Jane now does is she waits until I'm in the paddock and then she sends me a text message yes, saying pick is. the kids up. And I, I cannot tell you how much yeah. that has helped me turn up for my family. Would, would you mind speaking to how men's yeah. minds tick around that? And I need to honour that, yeah, this insight came from a fabulous man that was started Wheat Belt Men's Health in Western Australia, Julian Creek. And Julian and I were doing these sorts of workshops. Um, and he said to me one day, you know, that, you know, that's one of the key things is that, um, you know, not only do you have a better memory, but, you know, we can take on board the single focus stuff. So if a guy gets told to pick his kids up while he's in the kitchen, well, when he leaves the kitchen, it's kind of the information stays there. So when he gets to work, he ha- that's just not there anymore. And so he gets really busted and he feels terrible as a man later. He's let down his kid and he's... So we just, one of the best things that I think is actually helping relationships today is texting because there's another thing. So you just text it into the workspace exactly as you explained and then it, it doesn't tend to get forgotten. Plus he can go back to his phone and check it. The other one is that we as women are always, as berry pickers, want the best berries for our family. Um, you know, if you got back to traditional kinship ways, we're out there looking for the, only the best berries for us, which is why women are so wired for looking for specials when we go shopping, whereas men just go to replace the item. They don't give a toss about whether it's on special or something. And um, they actually think in, get it, out, right, done, task, tick, done. But women go, oh, no, I might find a better, oh, I might find a, yeah, that's the best product. So when you get sent to the supermarket to get some pasta sauce, 
there is only one sort that she thinks you should know by now. So again, anytime she asks, <laughs> just double check. Can you send me a photo? Because then you won't muck up. You know, like we're really picky about what we want because we want the best for our family. And surely you've seen me use it over and over. It doesn't matter what it is, the sort of eggs, <laughs> the sort of milk. Don't get the wrong milk. My poor man and I, we've had lots of things about cream, right? I said, just grab some cream. And he comes, sometimes comes home with three. <laughs> too scared about getting it wrong. So I've had to have, we've had lessons now uh, and photos. And I know it sounds ridiculous. But each time that our wonderful men feel like they've let us down, then what they've done is they actually kind of don't feel good about themselves. So that's what I keep saying, that when boys and men achieve something uh, that they believe will help them feel good, like I've done good, they give themselves self-worth. And that's that challenge, as you know, that I kept seeing little boys being shamed for things that they didn't have an intention to do wrong. They hadn't worked it out yet. Um, they couldn't keep their hands off their penis because it feels really good. And, you know, they haven't worked out the boundaries around it. And yet we're really busting them as though they do these things intentionally. And if you cumulatively keep shaming little boys and speaking harshly to them, you really damage that beautiful, sensitive heart and soul that's in there just exactly like it's in little girls. And then when they get to the teenage years, then that can get triggered with those big emotional stuff and they start feeling like they're useless and stupid and, and it, it can have devastating results. So, again, it's, it's a really big way for us to understand that boys are not innately tough. They have more muscles and more, sometimes more energy. But in actual fact, emotionally are more fragile. <laughs> Girls are way more savvy. Trust me. I'm just doing some research on it because I can't believe how smart my granddaughters are, not only how much they remember, but how emotionally manipulative they can be by about 18 months of age where a boy hasn't got a clue, right? He says, can I have a biscuit? He didn't care. He didn't figure out who to ask has got more chance of it. And do I do a bit of a swagger and bat my eyelids? It'll increase the chances of getting it. Like, no way. <laughs> I'm going to state the obvious, but, but ladies have never been men and men have never been ladies. And often, to your point, I think it's easy from where we are to make each other wrong. Yes, what other, what other comments would you have around how, firstly, our men can turn up better to their wives and vice versa? I'd love just to explore that because so many of our farming families are husband and wife teams and in adversity and with COVID and with homeschooling and all of those challenges. I think what's more important than ever is that we're united and that we're there for each other rather than against each other. So, would you mind just speaking to how we can turn up to each other probably more respectfully and more strongly? Yeah, and this can be really difficult because what we're innately doing as women is we're constantly working out how I can be a better mother in every single moment or, you know, how can I, you know, understand my relationship? And we can complicate it and we can go overboard. But what we're doing is we're reviewing stuff. So we will review why I behaved a certain way. Oh, gosh, I remember my mum used to yell at me like that. Or I remember being, so in other words, we analyse and we've got this fabulous memory. So when I was working in counselling full-time, um, Jeremy, there were times I'd say to a guy who's come in because um, he's, they were really about to ready to break up because of some of the things that he just didn't get. And um, I said, so what was your childhood like? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. 
Now, I actually have worked out the ways of getting back into that childhood. And when I get back there, you suddenly see them say, oh, my mum was hard. She was always hitting me and yelling at me and shaming me and, and hello. So his primary experience with the woman who should have held him in a safe place of love, which he then models future relationships on, was harsh and cruel. And um, so, again, it's that place that when we turn up, we turn up with our best intentions, and I absolutely reckon. Um, and that's why every now and then I'll have a dad come up to me at one of the seminars and say, oh, my dad was a real turd and a real asshole, and I don't want to be that sort of dad. But every now and then he comes out of my mouth, Maggie, and I just, and I love my missus and my kids, and I don't, I don't know how, and I don't read parenting books. And then one day I um, noticed you had your videos. So I started watching your videos at Smoko, and he was dropping F bombs all over the place. He was in his high vis suit, and he said, and, and oh my God, so I do that at Smoko now. And every now and then you come out my mouth, not my dad, and my missus, she just, She's just so proud of me. And so, again, how we were raised is a big thing with that. But if we're able to, after a hot moment, realise that every, each parent's doing the best they can, that we create a space that's safe enough for us to go back and say, hey, look, let's just have a check-in about how we're dealing with our little monster two-and-a-half-year-old at the moment driving us Burko, um, you know, and and let's have an honest conversation about that. It doesn't feel good for you, does it? And, and it's okay for a guy to say, I feel really lousy when I've done that shout bit and I, I you know, I just, I'm tough and I'm, it's, every part of me doesn't want to be that. So together we become a problem solver. That's a really helpful space. The second one I recommend is that, yeah, you do have to read sometimes. She sends you stuff to read. She tags you in on stuff. Now she's tagging you in so that you read something that may help you understand one of your behaviours without sitting down and saying it to you because you'll be kind of defensive. You'll see it as criticism and that hurts. We don't want the person we love the most criticising us. So it's how do I get to that honest space of conversation? That's the very first one that we want, we, and, you know, and bottom line is it should go both ways. That dad can come and say, whoa, I've just noticed that every time you come home on a, on a Thursday after you've done all this, you know, whoa, things are really hot around the house. And instead of seeing that as a criticism, we go, okay, so I think I've got I've got too much on on a Thursday, haven't I? I'm getting home stressed, aren't I? Well, can you step in and, and do that bit so that I can have a chance to regroup, yeah? The second thing I want to say is that everybody needs a break from being a parent um, and that any time um, one of the things we have as women is a to-do list that is far too long. And on our to-do list, we've got stuff on there that actually doesn't need to be there. And well, then our good... Yeah, and our good men are saying, hey, babe, just chill. Sit down and have a couple with me. They say, no, I've got all these things I have to do. Um, and that's because their mother did exactly the same thing. And sometimes it's um, recognising that, um, that there are things on it that really we can just leave. And I love it, the fact that so often um, kids will say to me, oh, thank God for dad, because he's he kind of chills everything. He says, no, nah, let's not worry about that. Let's get tank laying on. And he's kind of the one that kind of takes a bit of pressure off, but it's, it's how we tackle that as well. And the other one on that is um, that frustrates us as women is um, and men is that one day you'll come home and um, you say, so what can I do to help right now? 
right? So you might have come home from sport or something. And she says, oh, can you um, yeah, get the kids to do the chores outside, feed the dog, chuck them in the bath, and by then I'll have dinner ready. Great. So next time you come home on the same day, you assume you do the same thing. <laughs> nah, it's going to be different, right? And you've got to check in, what can I do to help today? Because she's changed her list around. And it's a bit like the um, honey to-do list, and it's a great tip. If she goes away on a book, you know, weekend or a weekend with the girls, and we need to both be having time apart with guys and girls so that we're actually able to just let our relationship just have a little breather space because what often you do is you miss them and you come home and you remember you love them, but if you're there all the time, you get sick of each other. Um is that she asks you, writes down the three things she'd like you to do while you're away. Because if she says it to you as you walk out the door and you get those three things done, well, she'll walk in the door and she'll say, well, why didn't you do that and that and that? And you'll go, well, well, you didn't say. But when it's written on the side of the fridge, it's a not negotiable, this is what was required this weekend, remember? Because you're trying to not only do things because you're a fixer and a doer, but you want to do the things that she appreciates and that she really wants you to do. But sometimes as women, we come up with something that we never said, but we'll pretend we said it because it was in our head and we thought it came out of our mouth. So our communication is just the most tricky thing in any relationship. And then my challenge is, you know, at times when we get locked down or it's, and I know it's really difficult, you know, two of my beautiful nieces are married to farmers in the wheat belt in WA. And I often do some deventing for them when they haven't seen dad for, you know, like four and a half, five weeks, he's still out there cropping and the kids are missing their dad, you know, and it's just tough um, that we, you know, vent with your girlfriend, you know, do something that cheers you up because that crop has to be put in now. It just can't say, oh, let's have a weekend, you know, pop off and have a good time. And last one too is even in amongst the house um, is that, um if a parent is escalating and not handling something well, have a conversation about tagging them out. So what that means is you might be in another room, you might be doing something different, but if you hear that sort of voice, and you know what it is, the kids escalate and the poor parents starting to raise their voice and sound like their parent that raised them, we go in and really gently just pat them on the arm and go, let me tag you out. Go have a bath, go have a cuppa, go have a lot of chocolate, go for a walk. I got this. And we do it without feeling criticized. We do it as, yeah, that's great. I really, because when we join the storm of our kids, it could be hard to stop being in the storm. And it's in that moment that we say we react instead of respond. And so I think that teaching us to tag each other out during difficult times is, is, is incredibly important. I still don't understand how a shower can turn Jane. 180 it's amazing the impact I'm a water person <laughs> mine's a bath so I used to just you know there were times you know I was in a whole house full of you know like five actually the dog was male too and um you know in among even though I'm part bloke and I um you know I really get it and I'm not much of a chatter and I don't dribble on and I actually my expectations were so realistic um there were times I just got sick of it all you know there's only so much farting and justing and wrestling that I could put up with so I go I'm going to have a bath just don't interrupt me I'll come back better and I'd have a bubble bath and nice music and candles and things like that and what's interesting is not only did they used to say don't wee in it mum because I'll go in next as if we wee in the bath um 
But secondly, and they poke notes under it because they really miss me. It's when I was kind of one of the boys was about 14 and I was doing far too much, which us mothers do too often. When you're tired, we just say yes to stuff we should say no to. And I was just unbelievably busy. He just walked up to me and said, Mum, I've run the bath for you. And that's when I realised that they tune in to us. And if we don't model our own strategies for taking care of ourselves, how do they know how they can help, right? And um, and for, for men, it might be something different. So, you know, um, one of my, you know, I, you know, sometimes it's I need you to go for a surf because you need to reset yourself or go and have a game of golf or do you know what I mean? I need to give you permission to fill your own cup because I know it's going to be better for our relationship and our family. And cup filling, you know, that's not easy in the rural community. And we were raised, you know, as women, we had to be servants for our men and our farmers were kings, you know, like it took a while for me to recognise that being a servant wasn't really worthwhile, wasn't wasn't honouring myself or my partner, but I was teaching my boys that they should expect women to do the same. So I was really thinking my boys had chores to do. They had to step up. They had to learn to clean and wash and things. Even though their own dad, it wasn't a thing. So it's that shifting again of the dynamics of we now parent as a team rather than the expect, even though in farming communities oftentimes it's just mum who's around, but really it's about that team approach that, you know, dad can cook dinners, dad can bath the kids, and they are, our dads are turning up with great big open hearts. I am just blown away with um, what I see and what I hear uh, and 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 really, it's only a couple of generations that that wasn't seen as um, okay for guys, and how much they're loving having this really tender-hearted relationship with their children. I yeah, I'm blown away. It's nice to hear you say that, Maggie. Thank you. Um, you've mentioned shaming. How how do we shame each other? And probably even more importantly, how do we shame our kids? Yeah, you know, the things are really what's a bit sad and please, you know, take this with greater, great, great love. Um, what we do particularly around uh, boys a lot is we uh, eye roll and sigh like this. That actually does hurt little boys, um, particularly from the people they love. Um, what are you doing? Those sort of questions, you know, are, are you stupid or something? You know, that sort of exasperated place. Don't be a sissy. Man, oh, man, does that one come up a lot. Um, and it's it's really interesting that we tend to focus a lot of that on boys, but we do still shame our girls um, with slightly different versions of it. Now, one of the other areas which is unintentional is around the humour we use for boys, right, because a lot of it is sarcasm and irony, right? Um, do you want something to really cry about? You know, that was really common in parenting way back. And what it doesn't sort of seem like it's a big thing, it does. It chews away at them. Um, ignoring, freezing out, um, comparing kids and putting one down, that's shaming. You know, we tend to do, we do that in our world, which is really difficult um, because you can have that really alpha male rooster boy who, you know, is confident now and then you've got the quiet boy who's not. And people compare them. And sometimes it's more our grandparents make these comparisons that, you know, so you know, step up, say that, shake my hand, look at my eye, you know, or tell you that you need to behave a certain way. Um, 
So I find um, that the biggest shame is how we deal when boys make poor choices particularly. It seems that girls can make these mistakes and we don't come down as hard. And it's that perception again that, you know, maybe we think boys are tougher. Um, What on earth were you thinking? What a stupid choice that was. God, jingies, you scratch your head. I've already told you five times. Um, And I have a beautiful article that says, what were you thinking? Um, Because so often boys' behaviour and choices is really spontaneous um, and impulsive and often warrior-like. So if they want to sort of dive off the, um, you know, the slide platform onto the ground, um, they may think they're Superman and realise, ouch, that hurts. And we will think, what? Um, But they didn't actually intend to hurt themselves. They actually didn't think that through. So my challenge so often to parents is rather than shame a boy for poor, lousy choices because he's not bad, he's not naughty, he is not stupid, but he has told all those things many, many times. And that is, hey, um, what, were you, what were you thinking you were doing? What were you trying to do? Because quite often he thought that would be really funny. And that's kind of what they do when they jump on their brother from the top bunk. I mean, this would be really funny. The physicality of boys is how they sometimes show affection to the boys they like. So that wrestling and stuff, every now and then it just gets exasperating. But really they have to kind of work out. It is a form of play and rough and tumble is actually how we can kind of work out when it's too much and when it's not and all those things. But there are times they'll hurt each other and we don't make them wrong. We just acknowledge that, yeah, sometimes you'll need to go, no, stop, that hurts, and we need to teach boundaries. And then the next step is, so um, if you've, made a choice that is caused a wrong, how are you going to make it right? And this is where the early accountability for boys and men. And, um, you know, in the old world, you would have just been belted, um, you know, and locked up and shamed or whatever. And, and, and nobody helped you to work out how you could make it right. Or what would you do next time you were in the same situation? And that's that you know, it's a process that, um, you know, I've I've talked about a lot and I'm starting to hear from parents who've been doing this now over a number of years. And there's a shift even in those crazy adolescent years when the testosterone goes berserk and also the brain prunes off some really important bits that they can have that conversation that says, so what were you, what were you trying to do? You know, that broken window, they probably weren't even aiming at it, right? They still are accountable at fixing it because that's someone's property. But how we handle that, we don't come down with the shouting, the yelling, the shaming. We come down with a really genuine, okay, so this is this is what's, what's not okay here and this is how we've got to work this through. And it's a process so that it becomes automatic. Because how often do we see, you know, significant people, men, particularly sporting men, who make really poor choices and then they read off a script that someone's written for them. No one has challenged them to say kind of like, You've made wrong. How are you making it right? You know, a forced apology is is worth nothing. Mm. Yeah. So can you see there are the steps around it? And I think one of the most powerful podcasts was the one um, with uh, Sarah Konoski when I was talking about mothering our boys. Um, and she's a country, she was a country growing up in the country too, and had two boys. And um, it was where I was talking about the experiences of how being shamed and that. Men came to me for counselling at some point and they shared with me, you know, something awful that had happened in the first five, six years of their life that had been handled so cruelly. 
that they had buried it, that they were the thing that needed to be ashamed of, and that some of those experiences um, they have never shared with a woman they've loved that they've been married to for 40 years. And when you ask them why, they say, um, I couldn't share it because I thought she would not be able to love me. And what had happened as a consequence um, were apparently I get these emails about a week later where um, it came from some men, but some were wives and some were daughters, that their dad had been driving the car, listening to that with them in the car and had to pull over sobbing and said, that happened to me. And that whole opportunity to be emotionally honest about something they didn't actually understand at the time. And it's one of those reasons that sometimes when boys are molested, sexually inappropriately touched, they stay silent for so long because they absolutely think they are the reason it happened and they are in some way wrong. And that's what shame is. It makes the person wrong, not what happened. So I think that was one of the things that really nearly broke my heart. Um, and the second second bit too was I think that loving and tenderness from we're getting from our dads now, Germany, is just going to shift the whole dynamic of relationships. Um, the ability, my dad never told me he loved me, right? He was a crusty, you know, like I could say we already a hundred this year. Um, how did I know he loved me? It's because sometimes um, when I'd be cruising around in the ute with him, we used to go checking the sheep a lot just so that he could get out of the house. Um, and I would be telling him a story from school or something I learned. And there was one day that he stopped the farm ute and we had, a, you know, those gear sticks on the side. I remember him putting the gear stick in and turning the car off and turning to me and giving me his 100% attention while I finished my story. And that's when I knew my dad loved me. And I think what we're now finding is that for men to be able to own how much they love the woman they've chosen to be with, they don't do it lightly, which is why I hate all these reality programs which make it look like a competition. It's just messing with kids, people's heads. Um, I had a, a man whose wife died of cancer because I worked in palliative care. She had two beautiful boys who were in their early 20s. And the dad had turned up every day, you know, and been right beside her. And um, after the ceremony, because I'm also I was a celebrant, so I did the funeral as well, and I saw him walk out and I thought, something's not right. And I gave him some space and then I saw him right down the car park in this country um, cemetery. And I went down and um, I said, are you, are you okay? And he said, no, no. And he was walking kind of backwards and forwards and he said, I can't believe I can be such an idiot. And I said, why? Why are you saying this? And he said, do you know how much I love that woman? I said, I could see it. And he said, do you know, I never told her in the whole six months when she was about to die that I loved her because it got stuck here. And I remember holding this man, crying with him. Actually, we knelt down behind the car. Actually, we sat on the ground. Um, and he had a really big cry and I was able to reassure him that even though it didn't come out his mouth, every single thing around him and the gestures and the love he offered, he showed her. She was not in doubt. But can you see again what we can do with conditioning? We make it not okay for men to own their, their tenderness and the love they have for their partners and their children. Then it has a price. It has a price. Thank you for saying that, Maggie. How um how would you have men 
deal with yesterday. If there has been shame in their reality growing up and so that they, I cannot or do my best to not pass that on, what would you have those men do that it might be hearing this and going, you know what, I did experience that and I don't want to deliver that into the next generation? Mm-hmm. How can they how can they visit into some of that and yeah. make meaningful change? Well, what's really good <clears throat> is that men's groups and men's organizations have have just been emerging at the same pace as open-heartedness in men. So even things like the Fathering Project have got organisations all over Australia, but there are some that just give opportunities to men to turn up for a weekend around a campfire and, and do stuff, and it's not all weirdo stuff. I think there for a while it was only weirdo men that were doing it. Um, so it's often about listening to other men's stories and then sharing a bit of yours. In other words, you don't have to necessarily. Of course, there are some fantastic therapists and counsellors um, who get men. If you've got one of those that you can find out, then they will be a really great guide because they know how and how to get to that place and how to move on from that place. Whereas some just want you to talk over and over and over and over about it and you just end up just making yourself feel worse. So men's groups, organisations, um, and I'll give you an example too of the Black Dog organization, Black Dog Ride. Um, one of my brother-in-laws is a motorbike freak and um, he has been on a number of these. Now, I can't think of anything worse than sitting on a motorbike and going from the bottom of WA to Ayers Rock and then come home via Darwin. I couldn't think of anything worse. Oh, it's not about the motorbike ride, is no, it? No, it's not about the motorbike riding. And he said to me, what's interesting, Maggie, is, you know, this is a group of men from all over Australia kind of come on this what we call a, it's not a vision quest, but it's a quest of gathering with an intention for good. He said, we don't say an awful lot around the campfires in the first, you know, four or five days. And it's on about the kind of fifth, sixth day that you'll you'll start to see men just starting to open up in a, so they have to make sure it's safe first, he says. And then um, before you know it, you know, it's just tumbling out. They get back on their bikes, they ride again. I think they're only allowed to have kind of nights of alcohol, you know, a few times. So it's nothing to do with alcohol. People keep saying you have to get men, you know, to have alcohol to loosen up. And that's not the truth. They have to feel really safe. And he said, and then kind of like before you know it, after they start doing that, what comes out of the guitars, the singing, and the stuff that men stopped doing years ago, you know, because it was kind of a bit girly or a bit arty or a bit and robust singing. So that's kind of how it's that healing is that I come to a place of experiencing joy in my body. So it's not just the story, but having the light shine on that story. It's no longer a secret. It's no longer a secret. And the person who they love is, is not on the ride. And then when they get home, they can either share it or not, but it's actually being set free. So I think that's the really key thing. And that's why sometimes it is a random stranger, you know, and, um, but I think that's, that's the way it's going. There's more and more of those spaces. Um, The man walk is one of those things that started around Australia uh, where men just meet and go for a walk. I have a coffee afterwards and they talk about mental health. They talk about what, when life gets hard, they talk about prostate cancer instead of just you know, men are notoriously bad for turning up to the doctor because warriors just, you know, they'll turn up for the cold and the man flu, but when they've got something really serious, 
they're warriors. I just have to wait. It's not that bad, right? And that's one of the reasons we lose so many men, you know, to cancer and heart attacks because they don't go and get checked up. So I love it that we've now got more of those programs that say, come on. And I say that at those seminars when I've got the women, you know, and the men, please get checked up because, you know, your family want you alive. They, they, they don't want to lose you and you're not going to seem as weak and that there are, there are men now that are stepping up, not just in mental health, but their physical health and saying, come on, you know, um, our bodies, you know, like it, it's, it's still, it's, it's not guaranteed to keep working brilliantly, but what we need to do, it's not weak to turn up to your doctor and say, check me out. Yeah. We put our car in, but we just, yeah. we don't always put our body in. Grease and oil change. Yeah. And women are saying it to them all the time. Mm. Come on, I need you to go. I want you to go and check it. Can you please go? And we just ignore them because we think, oh, no, I'm fine. Yeah. Maggie, what about for our mums and dads, but homeschooling and isolation <laughs> and juggling multiple businesses and all of that busyness? Um, Lousy Wi-Fi. And and technology in technology is nuts. I mean, how the heck are you mind, doing that? Would you mind just sort of yeah, sharing absolutely. some of your insights to help right. our families with that? Totally. So um if you are running a business from home and you are now in remote learning and you have children of different ages, you can't do all three of those brilliantly. You just can't. I don't know how anybody who has got children under five is navigating doing schooling and running a business. You just can't do all of it, but you can do chunks of it. And one of my biggest tips is, again, is having a plan. We create a plan. Um, And I really am going to say as a former teacher, if you get a couple of hours out the road that's fairly meaningful, ticket, that's great. Uh, But for some of our kids, they might need, they might prefer to do that two hours in the afternoon and have the morning to run feral, whatever. Um, And they might like to lay on the floor instead of sitting up looking like they're doing it like a classroom. So we need to let them have a bit more agency and autonomy on how they get it done uh, and when they get it done. So that's huge. And, of course, you are going to have issues with technology, et cetera. Second one is a really good idea if both parents are around the house a bit is that you (laughs) you create a crazy T-shirt that has a DP on it, which is Designated Parent. So you put that T-shirt on if you're doing the first session in the morning and the other parent disappears to do serious stuff without being interrupted because that's the parent you go and ask, oh, I think, you know, I need something to eat. What's my snack? I don't know how to, what, what does an adjective mean, right? And then you swap it over. So that gives you a really clear space around that. Um, and the other part too is that um, older kids can help younger kids. But within, within our homes, now's the time we say, right, you all need to step up. Our family needs, it's a system, and we need you all to step in here so that we can do our job so that you guys can get to eat and we keep our property, our house or whatever. We need our kids to know, step up, okay? So and you can, and we work out those chores. So we've got different jobs. I might get you to start preparing dinner if you're not really good at cooking with a fry pan, but... I'm a firm believer you throw a lot of things into a baking dish, seriously, and chuck it in the oven. It usually turns out pretty good anyway, and you don't have to do a lot to it, right? So, And slow cookers, get them cranked up because they can be doing the dinner. Our kids can put on slow cookers, trust me. Um, And then underneath all that, we've got to prioritise where are they having some fun because stressed brains don't learn well. 
So being able to get outside, have some exercise, have some fun, ring up somebody or FaceTime a friend or jump on and do a Zoom study group with the older age group if you've got any Wi-Fi. We have to honour the need for connection and fun and stop stressing too much about will they fall behind? I think today we saw that um, Victoria did really well in the NAPLAN results, which showed that there is a they were in lockdown more than anybody last year, that schools are able to pick up. And sometimes we've got to recognise our kids are learning lessons about this and the memories I want them to have is the day that we went, yeah, we're not having school today, we're not working today, let's get the movies out, the popcorn out, stay in our jammies and let's have a movie-thon. Now, I'm going to tell you that's the memory that Mm. they'll remember later. And then my last tip is make sure somewhere in the house you have the big plan of a holiday, a camping trip, or a dream that you're going to do when we have the freedoms we used to experience. So the kids have got something to look forward to because the fact we don't know when this is going to finish does our heads in because our brain is constantly looking at a potential threat to our survival. That's that's Mm. because we are supposed to do it. We don't have what we call cognitive closure. There's no end point. So we need to put something in around when the end point will be and look forward to that because we do know that hope makes a difference. And when we encourage our kids to reach out for other kids and for, to the grandparents and to the elderly in their town, every time we do something kind and generous to someone else, we feel better. So, again, they're just those little simple things that we can lift us up when everything is really what I call pretty crappy. And I wrote an article, um, a blog the other week about <laughs> living in our crazy, crappy, chaotic world. I love a lot of Cs. Yeah, so no one's doing it brilliantly. And you have days when you just need to sit and cry, honour the tears because there's a lot of grief. I have missed my sister's 70th birthday for two weeks in Broome going up to Horizontal Falls. I've missed my brand-new baby grandson in WA. I have missed holidays. I have, you know, with families, all my family that I'm missing. There's most of mine are in WA. Um, That means there are days my bath is now my cry time. So that I don't cry in the middle of this, I have a really good couple of times. And and we all need to honour that because grief is a huge part of where we are right now. Mm. Let it be and let it be real, right? Yeah, Yeah. let it be real. Let it be honest and let our kids see that, you know, when big stuff happens, it's okay for us to feel sad, but we need to give them, okay, if you see me crying, get the tissues, put the kettle on, go find the Tim Tams, give me a hug, give them some things they can do, and they'll step up and they'll help us out. Thank you. There's so many insights in there. That's just wonderful. The brightness of the future for the whole family um, I think is really important. And um, it's nice to know that me putting up the chicken sheds with the kids this morning for homeschooling is okay. So thank you. Oh, it's all that mess. (laughs) Exactly. Maggie, do you have time? Three questions from um, our farmers. I put out a note saying who's got questions. I've just got three that I'd love to ask you if I could. Yeah. So the first one is from Samantha. How do I motivate my kids to set big goals um, and use this to create something before they finish school? We've done lots of talking and I think my kids have huge potential, parental bias I know, but they seem content with just doing enough to garnish the praise of their teachers with minimal effort and without risking anything for themselves. I feel that these formative years late primary and early high school are fundamental to setting down foundations for the rest 
of their lives and I don't want them to waste this opportunity to try new things, fall and get back up again. On the flip side, they're still children and need time to be um, yep. bored and discover life and love in an organic way. Right, relax. Just put those messages out there. What are you modelling in your life? Are you noticing and making sure they see other people? Weren't the Olympics a great boost for us all to have big dreams? Secondly, um, until that prefrontal grows a little bit more, they're not really as capable of envisaging the big life. There are some of our kids that do. So don't stress too much. When they're getting to kind of 15 to 16, rather than aim for the career pathway of choice, um, because that's one of the pressures that our kids are saying, the pressure we're getting from parents is to you know, get a good education, a good job. I'm going to say, how can you be the best expression of yourself by making the world a better place? Just sow that seed and then make sure that you are making sure they see people in the world. Um, and I, you know, just throw out the um, fiver for a farmer, you know, the boy that created that wonderful uh, initiative to create money for our families. It was, I think it was 10 at the time. He's had a great idea. Now, that happens occasionally, and if it does happen, they get a good idea, support them at doing it, and then let go because I know that I can hear that same thing. We want our kids to be capable of big dreams. You need a brain that's capable also of, of feeling that, and the more secure and the more love they are in their home environment, the more chances they can dream big. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Samantha. Um, one from Michelle that's more of a statement than a question, but she's really keen for your comment. Um, I thought I was doing the best by guiding my nine-year-old daughter's behaviour and trying to shape her. What I think recently, though, is a lot of those behaviours are trials. They're trying different things on to figure out who they are. For example, our daughter used to copy the behaviours of other children, like funny ways of talking and walking. I would tell her not to copy. I thought it was attention-seeking behaviour and it was really quite annoying. I've let a lot go on this um, in the last three or four months and what I've seen is her confidence grow and her trialling more behaviours. None of them are naughty. They're just things like talking funny, doing funny walks, being crazy, etc. Um, it came as an epiphany one day. I thought, oh, shit, if I kept on pouncing on things that I find annoying or that I think others would find annoying, it would just destroy her confidence and prolong her figuring this out for herself. She would be constantly questioning herself and being afraid of, um, to be herself. Yeah. Um, your thoughts on yeah. that? Well done. Well done, Mummy. And, and also that's that place if all we're ever doing is telling our kids what they're doing wrong instead of noticing what they're actually doing, what are their natural strengths, then we, all we do is become a whinger and then they push away from us and don't want to hear us when they're going to need us to be that guide. So you're right, they're trying on all sorts of things and as they get to the teenage years, you're going to find this even more. The search for identity becomes stronger and there'll be times that she's going to want to do crazy stuff with your hair and you're just going to have to let her experience what that's like and how people react um, and, and that she's going to be able to be confident at making her own choices and recognising, yeah, no, nah, that didn't work. Uh, rather than endlessly waiting for parental approval for her choices. She is experimenting exactly as you worked out. Well done, Mummy. Good on you, Maggie. Thank you. So they were the longer ones from our mums, a really short one from Ben. Um, navigating the conversation and the introduction of alcohol yep. to Beautiful. our young men and women. Yep. <clears throat> and then with that, you know, the conversation around being responsible with drugs. Yeah, beautiful. 
Um, one of the things we do know is that today's kids are actually drinking less um, excessively than previous generations, so that's a good thing. Very first thing is do not give them a taste for alcohol. That's really something that was really common in rural communities. Just give them a taste a little bit every now and then, that'll be fine. No, the research is really strong. The sooner that they taste it, the more likely they're going to have problems with it later in life. So absolutely. Then the second clear message is they get to the teen years where they do take, you know, risk-taking is very normal. I am going to say that you can um, make sure that you are very clear around it not being okay. That means you're not going to buy alcohol for them uh, until they're well over 18 because it's 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 really an illegal thing to do, but it's also not okay um, because what they will do is it will be a risky thing to do and then they'll do it. But if you just open the gate, trust me, it goes from there to really bad really quickly. Never buy them. I have still seen people buying six packs for 14-year-olds to go to parties, you know, um, Second one, too, is what are your behaviour modelling? That's another really big one. And as they're getting into that whole, one of the biggest problems is actually not so much alcohol is things to do with um, things that are likely to become addictive and that there's a window up to 16 where everything is much more likely to become addictive because of brain changes. So do everything you can to keep them away from too much gaming, uh, tobacco, vaping, any drugs, any alcohol, anything because the chances of the brain creating an unhealthy addiction is really high. So everything you're going to say to them is your brain is developing and I want you to have the best possible brain. So anything that's potentially toxic, leave as late as possible. Um, And then there's that place down there of drugs. Um, We're finding probably the biggest issue at the moment is the um, out-of-control vaping. Um, and you really need to check out on Paul Dillon's site. Paul Dillon is um, a former West Aussie that is in Sydney. He does drug and alcohol education with teens. He is the most wonderful, warm, common sense sort of guy you can find. He will give you really specific things around it that um, we do know. You know, this is what do they do in adolescence is exactly what we've always been, you know, led to believe, but making it as difficult as possible. And I am going to say if you've got spirits in your house, I'd get a padlock on it. Now, I know there will be some of you who think you can trust your kids. You can absolutely trust your kids when you're home or no one else is there. But if they have a bunch of friends turn up and the friends say, let's drink the vodka and put water back in it, they are biologically wired to follow the pressure of their friends, not the influence of their parents who they love and respect. So I just made it really difficult um, to access those sorts of things. And it's sort of often done in a fun way. It's not. It's not. So make it difficult. Make it clear that your values and your family mean as late as possible means your brain is going to be the healthiest and best it can be. And know that there will be others who will not um, put any restrictions on it and your kids are going to complain about it. But that's what parenting is really all about. Thanks, Maggie. It's the um, first year anniversary of your best-selling book, Boys to Men, today. So congratulations on achieving that in COVID and at this time. And your book, Parental as Anything, and your other books are just incredible. What are you most proud of, Maggie, about the impact that you have had and continue to have on parents and their children across Australia? Oh, that's a piggy because I I still really pretend that it's not really very significant. Um, It's just every now and then I run into somebody somewhere who ends up in tears um, because they were at breaking point, 
particularly with a son, um, and sometimes it's a mum of a boy or it's a teenage boy, and they tell me that that is exactly what gave them the direction to change and they now have a loving relationship. Now, that that's when I think, oh, okay, I'll keep going a bit longer. Um, I've never been one for external accolades or anything like that, and I every now and then still shake my head and think, what would my dad say right now? I know I like to write as a young kid. But I think my greatest accolade is the fact that um, my boys still love their crazy dumb mum and they still take the mickey out of me and we love hanging out together. So I think that's probably my best. I still want to be, um, you know, the mum that (laughs) is incredibly embarrassing and unpredictable and uh, the rock that can still be beneath them whenever they need it. Thank you, Maggie. Well, um, I just want to let you know that, um, we read your books and, you know, we we have applied so much of what we've learned from you over our 12 years of parenting and you've had a profound effect on my relationship with Jane and you've had a profound effect on how we raise our four children. Um, and so, yeah, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for that. Thank you so much. I'll keep going and I won't retire. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for you know, your willingness to be part of our podcast and for sharing so openly as you always do. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. All the best, everybody. Thanks, Maggie. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, guys, that's Maggie Dent. Um, you know, she has just so much depth and so much insight around turning up for each other, um, communicating really well being more resilient, um, especially through tough times. And I know there are so many of you continuing to deal with adversity in your communities. Um, I love just how pragmatic and how practical she is and how she does help us understand each other better, mums and dads, husbands and wives, boys and girls. Her books are incredible and I recommend them highly. Her website is maggiedent.com.au. Her podcast is Parental as Anything and her recent book, which she has sent me that I've just finished reading, Parental as Anything, is an absolute Bible if you're in the thick of raising young men and young women. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I just think she's a real treasure and a very special um, contributor to how we turn up to each other as families. Thank you, guys. Take care. Keep being incredible and speak soon.